Welcome to Printing Money, the insider's perspective on finance and investment in the 3D printing industry. Here are your hosts, Alex Kingsbury and Danny Piper. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode three of the Printing Money podcast. This episode, we're going to have a deeper look at the 3D printing industry in the public markets. My name is Alex Kingsbury and joining me is my co-host, Danny Piper. And today, Danny, we have a very special guest. A very big welcome to Troy Jensen from Lake Street Capital. Thanks, Alex. Um, I, I do want to spend a moment and introduce Troy for a second. Troy, for those who don't know, and you should know, by the way, because Troy's probably one of the most prominent research analysts in 3D printing and has been around the industry for a long time. He's a CFA and a senior research analyst with Lake Street Capital. We first met back in October of 2013 when uh, we were stuck on a panel together at the Additive Aerospace Conference. It was the week you guys were taking Voxel Jet Public and uh, hosted by SmartTech, by the way. So we've kind of gone way back. It's great to reconnect. And Troy, I'd like to, if you could, just to spend a couple minutes and let everyone hear a little bit more about your background since you've been around the industry a long time. Yeah, thanks, Danny. And thanks, Alex. And it's hard to believe it's been 10 years now since uh, since we first met, Danny. But um, but yeah, I've been a, a, a Wall Street analyst. So I, I publish research on technology stocks. I've been doing it for 25 years, um, a variety of technologies. I actually kind of tripped into additive or 3D printing because I'm based in Minneapolis and Stratasys is based in Minneapolis. So I discovered them as 18 years ago when I first picked up coverage of uh, Stratasys. Back then, it was just really just them and 3D systems. Um, 2013, you know, we had a couple companies go public and materialize in Voxel. Um, and then obviously, you know, two years ago, a year and a half ago, we had, you know, the SPAC market craze and, you know, Velo, Mark Forge and, and a variety of others kind of come out publicly. So um, you know, 18 years following this space. I just made a whole bunch of good contacts. I kind of differentiate my research by doing a lot of survey work. So we like to try to like talk to the resellers and the distributors and just get a sense for kind of demand trends in the industry, right? When things are better than expected, you know, these stocks will hopefully go up and when things are worse than expected, they go down. So, you know, my job is to try to figure that out before they report so investors can kind of get, you know, their positions correct uh, and try to, you know, monetize, you know, any proprietary research we do. So really excited to be on this uh, podcast today. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, thanks, Troy, for joining. I mean, it's a, it's it's fun because I think we have very complimentary. We're, we're typically trying to sell into these companies with various new technologies, looking at them as potential buyers on the public side and or interfacing with them on on the investment side. So we we look at them with different lenses and it'll be fun to go through it today. But I think uh, maybe starting off, Alex, I think there's a, a number of reports that came out on the industry that uh, are probably worth noting. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, you know, March, late March is usually the time that all the market data for the previous year comes out. And um, three, we had three big ones come out, which was, you know, the Wallers report, which is a classic, of course, been going for, you know, about 20 years plus. Um, but also the Smart Tech report and uh, AM Power, a, a newer player in the scene. So, um, you know, each of those does a, a fabulous job in collecting a whole lot of um, data across the 3D printing industry. I mean, you know, as we've discussed, you know, 10 years ago, 18 years, we've, we've all been in the industry for quite a long time and we know how secretive and closed it tends to be. And so being able to collect this data at the scale that all of these um, organisations do is pretty impressive. Um, but look, just to touch briefly on it, I guess uh, there's a couple of important points I think that came out from the um, 2022 market data. Um, all reports aligned broadly on a market size, um, ranging though from you know 10 to 18 billion. So um, you know, is that is that half the size or double the size? I'm not sure. But but look, it's it's broadly aligning. Um, and then the other thing I think that is probably most of the mostly important here is the um, the growth rate as well. And there was a, probably a tighter um, alignment on that. So you know, alignment of growth rates are around eighteen to twenty three percent. So double digit growth rates is the the bottom line here um, for the three D printing industry. I think it's really interesting though when uh, these reports are able to really segment out those growth rates because that's where I think you get some really good insights into the 3D printing industry. And one of the things that came out uh, from SmartTech was that the so software was the fastest growing market um, and that the medical uh, devices are not driving the growth anymore. So that's much it's a much more matured uh, industry segment for 3D printing. 
Um, and instead, and I'm sure we all are aware of this, and anecdotally, uh, defence and space is really driving the growth in the 3D printing market. Um, AM Power did a good job in separating out metals and polymers. And this is something I think uh, you guys, when we uh, talk to investors, they're very interested in talking about this double-digit growth rate. Um, but my point has always been, you know, you really need to look at the you know, particular segment of market that you're you're thinking of investing in because one overall growth rate for the whole industry doesn't necessarily apply to what you're looking at investing in, right? And uh, yeah, so AM Power separated out metals and polymers and basically said, you know, industrial polymer was twice the size of metal, but metal is growing at twice the rate of polymers. So I thought that was an interesting point. I'd say from a public market perspective, the fact that we're still seeing double digit growth is kind of critical. Um, if you think about a year and a half, two years ago when COVID hit and busted supply chains, this whole reshoring theme and nearshoring theme, it had been a huge catalyst, I think, for, for the industry, for the pipeline and the activity based on the resellers I talked to. Um, I guess I kind of came into kind of that COVID scare, the recession and the war here recently, thinking the industry is going to grow, I call it 18 to 20%. And I feel like, you know, these new technologies can typically see delays, right, when you get into, you know, economic issues. Um, but just the fact that we're still growing double digits is critical. I mean, I think the industry, instead of that 18 to 20 that it could have been, it's still growthy. I think if we can do 8 to 10, 10 to 12 now in this market, that would be fantastic because I do think once we get out of it, it's going to accelerate again because there's a lot of activity on, seems to be on the manufacturing side of it. And what you said about metal seems added, metal seems correct, right? I mean, look at Velo and, and SLM, they're kind of killing it right now. But uh, yeah, I think uh, a big fan of Terry Wollers used to write for his report, but... Yeah, look, I'll echo one thing. I think that the, the pace of metals and when you see it in the aerospace market, I think we're going to see more of that growth. And that's why it does make sense. Uh, we're in market on a couple metal deals, you know, at the current time and they are outpacing the growth. That's why I feel like, you know, the, the whole industry is getting a lift because of growth, but I think it's sort of lumpy where it is. And you and I think as we go through some of the public companies, you're going to see where that lumpiness is as we, as we go talk about this further. Maybe transitioning off, I think, you know, there's there's not a lot that's happened in the VC and M&A world uh, since our last podcast, but, but we just want to highlight a couple of deals before we jump into the public ones. And so uh, first out of the gate, you know, just uh, I think two days ago, Makerverse announced their Series A round, which was a $10 million Series A. And they have three investors in on that round, 9.5 Ventures. Uh, you got Siemens Energy and Zeiss. And so I, I don't think it comes as a surprise because in March of last year, there was a big announcement really with Makerverse being formed uh, by Marcus Siebold and a few others. Marcus, for people who don't know, came out of Siemens Energy and he brings a very deep perspective and sort of production programs and, and really production additive, deep expert. He's also in metals, by the way. So um, Siemens Energy backing him. I mean, that's where he comes from. And I think there's a lot of support. And, uh, and also Zeiss was announced in that last round. So kudos to that team uh, for getting the Series A done. Yeah, I think the, uh, so Makerverse, uh, you know, obviously we think about Makerverse and we think, oh, okay, you know, Shapeways, Zometry, you know, Protolabs. It's a, it's a similar kind of business model, Right, but I think one of their biggest differentiators, Makerverse, is the fact that they have this backing from Siemens and Zeiss, and the backing is more than financial. I mean, these are, these two companies are totally integrated into Makerverse um, in a very, very much of a strategic partnership type of way. One of the things I thought was really interesting, and I sh we, sh we probably should say, yeah, that that Marcus Siebold came out of Siemens Energy and he led the additive division for Siemens Energy. And we're talking like, you know, a huge amount of additive work in industrial gas turbine and a lot of, uh, I guess you could say, like non-traditional metal markets as well. Um, so they did a really good job, Siemens Energy, of uh, working in, you know, the hydrogen you know, infrastructure, in uh, working in lots of different types of alternative energies, renewables. Um, so really cracking those markets. But one yeah, thing that I, I think, yeah, go ahead, Danny. I was going to say, well, I mean, we had the fortunate uh, benefit of working with the Siemens Energy team because they had made an investment into Eagle Engineered Solutions, which was the ceramic 3D printing, largely for that Siemens Energy business line. And uh, and so we had known Marcus already through that before. But when you talked about some of these alternative areas, he, he, he has visibility into, I think, a much broader array of industrial applications and understands the rigors of those supply chains. And that's what I think is interesting about this opportunity for him. 
and I think the other thing that's interesting is Zeiss, right? Um, because you know they are you know heavily involved in the more downstream, you know, quality assurance uh, type part of the supply chain. And I know that they'll be using you know Zeiss pretty heavily within Makerverse, uh, and that's pretty important in terms of you know customer order fulfillment um, is being able to offer a, a quality level as well via Zeiss. Yeah, well. It's- I think Zeiss, it's interesting to see them sort of getting into the market. I know they've been sitting around with the venture group and looking for a while. They obviously bring metrology expertise, but when you look at what Nikon's been doing, it's, uh, I think, you know, getting a little more hands-on with customers and getting involved is probably about time for them. So uh, good to see that that's all coming together. So Yeah, I think they're going to have the European market um, fairly well stitched up, to be honest. I think what's going to be really interesting is is how they work at getting more global Right. So, you know, particularly expanding to the US because that's a hotly contested space. So we shall Agreed. see. Should we jump on to some of the MA opportunities that uh, picked up? We had um, the Covestro Stratasys um, acquisition that closed uh, just very, very recently, April 5, um, which we knew was on the cards. Covestro was acquired by Stratasys for 80 million euros. Um, and yeah, it's an interesting materials portfolio for Stratasys. I'll say, uh, you know, obviously I follow Stratasys and it's been one of the stocks that I have followed for 18 years. So you know this one really well. So I applaud that acquisition. Um, the problem with a lot of these stocks, and you hear me talk more when we kind of get into these publics, is lack of profitability, right? So they're buying <laughs> early stage companies that are losing money and uh, you know, just not a lot of profits in this industry. I'll pause on that for a second. But the fact that, you know, this is instantly accretive. So it's going to come out with better gross margins and the corporate average is going to have instant profitability. So they're paying cash to get that income. So from Stratasys perspective, remember, they've always been kind of a closed company, right? They're FDM machines. They, you know, you had to kind of buy the, you know, granted you could, you know, jailbreak these things and, and kind of use third party materials. But for the most part, they tried to monetize and keep everything closed. So when they bought uh, with RPS and Origin, Right now, they've got these resin-based platforms, DLP and SLA, and they were using third parties and partnering. So I think now they just want to own the technology, own the materials, and get a higher uh, profitability for the company. It's interesting on the Covestro side because they barely own this asset for, what, uh, not even a year or maybe a year because they just picked it off from DSM as part of a larger acquisition and then spun Correct. it out. So yeah. So it's uh, it's not like it was a long-lived asset inside of Covestro or something that was core. Now, DSM, on the other hand, had been building up a portfolio and a very strong interest in the additive space until they decided to exit you know, some of their uh, thermoplastic and polymer business. So um, so this was just really part of the bigger deal that was done between DSM and Covestro. And I'm glad that uh, Stratasys has picked it up because that I think, Troy, you just nailed it. It'll give them a nice integration of materials into their platform. Yep. So moving on, Avi Rakenthal uh, from Nexus 3D has been on a bit of a shopping spree recently. Um, XYZ Printing and Adifab have been two very recent acquisitions in the SLS space. What do you guys think yeah. of that? I would say that, uh, you know, with respect to the XYZ Printing acquisition, I was a little surprised on that because Nexa does have an SLS platform. Um, but is either maybe there is some technology that, uh, that Avi and Nexa needed, or maybe it was just, you know, acquiring market share, or maybe it was just, uh, you know, a heck of a deal, right? And got, a, you know, an asset and eliminated a competitor and, and didn't have to pay much for it. I think that's really important, a really important point, Troy. Um, they did actually already have an SLS printer and uh, that, that was under development, which was uh, brought into the Nexa business via a previous acquisition. Um, so yeah, as you say, this may be a matter of um, wanting to just buy a fully developed platform at a at a at a at a good price. Um, perhaps a little bit opportunistic. I'm wondering if it. I mean, I'm just looking at it briefly. I think the XYZ acquisition is a smaller format machine than what they were trying to do with the QLS 820, the larger machine that uh, I think probably came out True. of NXT. Yeah. So. It may be complimentary, but Troy, I think you you had a point that it might have just been a good deal too. And I think what we're starting to see is the market is starting to consolidate around sort of distribution channels. This wasn't a complete acquisition of XYZ, so it was a product line. And I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think uh, XYZ is out of 3D printing now. So maybe this was the only platform that they really sold that had you know some substance to it or, or size. 
Maybe we should pivot over to the Adafab one. For, for those who don't know, Mitsubishi Chemical actually invested in the company back in 2019. I think that's when I recall meeting them uh, the first time. And you know, they, it's basically a complementary technology that sits on side of DLP, where they're printing sort of the elements that go into injection molding. And they had, they'd gone to market with Carbon, actually, as a partner back in 2019 timeframe. I think they had some tripping hazards in that relationship. Um, according to PitchBook, it looks like they've raised up to $12 million on a couple of follow-on rounds. But, you know, in my conversations with the company, I think they were needing to find a home here. And in starting, we saw the relationship with Nexa first emerge at Rapid last year when Adafab started displaying in the Nexa booth. So, um, so it sort of makes sense. I'm guessing this was a, a smaller tech-in acquisition too, as uh, Adafab was needing sort of that DLP relationship to to augment what they did with the materials that they had. I think we should get stuck into the public markets because, Troy, this is absolutely your home and we can't wait to get some of your insights. One of the things that we touched upon in pre- the previous episode is the Stratasys and Nanodimension back and forth, um, which, of course, has progressed quite a bit since we last spoke about it. Um, I guess just, you know, broadly speaking, what are some of your insights, Troy, on that relationship? Yeah, this has been kind of a crazy story. Um, so for those that don't know, Nano Dimension did a whole bunch of secondary offerings and raised something like $1.5 billion about, you know, anywhere from, you know, six, nine to, to a year and a half ago. So the concept was that they were going to roll up the the additive industry and they started doing some, but, you know, they're spending money buying unprofitable businesses and they had a pretty big burn rate. Um, I think when they first got all these assets too, um, a lot of these facts were coming out and there were some crazy valuations on some of them. So I do think Nano was right to kind of wait till some of the valuations reset and pull down. But to me, this has just been the weirdest deal because normally when an acquisition gets announced um, with public stocks, if you're trading at 14 and you're coming out with an $18 bid, you'll see that stock typically gap up to like 1790 and it'll be a couple points between where it's trading and what the offer is. And that's just the risk. This is where the arbitrage investors kind of get involved and try to play whether or not they think it's going to close to get that last few percent. Sometimes you'll see the stocks actually trade above the bid price because investors will know that either there's going to be another, another company coming in with a higher bid or that there'll be, you know, the, the, company that's supposed to get acquired may hold out and want for more. This one was really weird because when they announced it, it was like a 14-ish dollar stock. They announced an $18 acquisition. The stock maybe went up to 16. Mm, It's shocking to have that big of a spread. And to me, that just screams that Wall Street knows this transaction isn't going to happen. right? And I think the shareholders of Stratasys prefer the current management team Right versus, you know, bundling it with nano and having more losses and and just I don't know it'd be it disrupt a company that's executing really well right now. So I don't know if you saw the news. If it was I think it was yesterday morning and even the day before they came out with a higher bid. Their final bid was twenty dollars and five cents. You know, I said instantly the board at um, Stratasys is going to deny that or decline it again. I know they and we're going to get to valuation spreads with some of the other public companies, but. Stratasys trades at such a massive discount to the other guys, it's just really unfair. So I knew that they're going to decline it right away. But what Nano is going to do now is they're going to do a public tender, right? Um, so what that means is they'll just kind of offer. I think it's, and Danny, you may know better than me, but I think it's just more they're going to reach out to all the shareholders of Stratasys and see if they would be willing to sell for $18. And if they can get 51% ownership through that way, then they can go ahead and force so this is as hostile as you can get. Um, to me, it's kind of weird because this is not consolidating the industry. This is changing the ticker symbol on Stratasys, and nothing really changes. But um, yeah, it's it's fascinating, and, and you're right. And, and you know, it's 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 an interesting approach. I, I don't know how it's going to play out um, from the standpoint of reaching out because they also have those poison pills that they put in after the uh, nano dimension, you know, had bought what 12% uh, of Stratasys a little while back. So it's a risky gamble, but it ought to tell you sort of where nano dimensions, you know, sitting right now between their shareholder disputes. And this, this sort of is the kind of hail Mary attempt to solve the problem with those, uh, those investors, because if they turn around, it's really hard for them to go execute on another transaction, probably of this magnitude in the industry. Right. So we'll we'll see. 
Oh, just what I just want to point out, Nano Dimension, like I said, they got something like $1.3 billion on their balance sheet right now. The stock's trading at a market cap of $660 million. Yeah. So it has a negative enterprise value of about $700 million. It's just uh, unbelievable. And Troy, what does it mean when a company trades below their cash value? Well, I mean, my, my belief, I think the prior uh, belief too, is that Nano is going to continue to spend the money on acquiring more unprofitable companies, right? So when you see stocks trade below cash or near cash, it typically investors don't give them credit for the cash because it's not going to be there in a year, right? So it's hard to add that in the valuation if you know you're going to spend it. So, you know, maybe we should pivot on this one because I I think you you just brought up a point that I kind of want to address because it's always been an open question in my mind. And this is sort of the, the, the dynamic of valuation between 3D systems and Stratasys. It's it's fascinating because when I when I look at their historical revenues, they're fairly close. I mean, they just sort of mirror each other. But all of a sudden, especially in 2022, Stratasys sort of pulled away from 3D systems, but yet they trade at half the total enterprise value to revenue multiple that 3D systems does. I'd love to get your kind of feedback and take on what's what What's going on there? Absolutely. So, and just to correct something, so you did say that Stratasys kind of you know stretched the lead over over 3D systems on, on the revenues. I would point out that when Jeff Graves came into 3D systems, he divested a lot, right? So there's a lot of non additive, you know, kind of businesses that Avi Reichenthal had acquired that that he got rid of and made it more of a pure play. I got my comp sheet updated right now. I'm looking at it. So Stratasys. So normally in Wall Street, we typically want to value stocks based on earnings. Right, so it's either the price to earnings multiple, EBITDA multiples, discounted cash flows. Um, but almost everybody in this industry, except Stratasys, doesn't have profitability, so you can't look at profitability metrics. And as Danny had said, you know, you got to look to an EV to sales multiple. 3D Systems this year forecast is for 557 million. Stratasys is 639 million. Right, so Stratasys is bigger. Stratasys is going to have profitability this year. They're kind of two to three percent operating margins. Um, you know, 3D Systems is losing money. They have a lot of investments in Regenerative um, and a bunch of kind of businesses that, that just aren't producing revenues right now. So they have a lot of expenses that go with it. But 3D Systems is trading at two times EV to sales and Stratasys is trading at, uh, at 0.9 EV to sales. And that goes back to another reason why I think just this last topic with Nano, Stratasys doesn't understand this, this spread and how, how come they trade at such a discount. I honestly don't either. But if Stratasys did trade at uh, you know the same type of multiple, you're talking about a you know twenty eight to thirty dollars stock, right? So that's why they don't want to accept this uh, this twenty dollar offer from Nano. But Danny, to, to hit your question, then you know why is there such a spread? It's baffled me my entire career following this industry, and it's not just this spread's big now; it's always been. And I think if you go back in time, I think Avi did a good job of branding 3D Systems as is this this additive company. Um, there is historic, there's a belief in Wall Street and there's empirical evidence that Israeli-based companies can trade at a discount to U.S.-based companies. That has to do with taxes. A lot of Israeli companies can have significantly lower tax rates, so the profitability looks higher. So Wall Street kind of adjusts that. I think there was always, you know, concerns about war in, you know, the Gaza Strip, right? And that's uh, Stratasys is either in or very close to it. In fact, I do think they uh, do have some facilities in the Gaza Strip. 3D Systems just has more exposure to manufacturing. You know, Align was 25% of revenues. They've got a metal machine, right? So they've got more um, manufacturing exposure. Stratasys is really viewed as more prototyping. And I think uh, Yoav from Stratasys just said on their last earnings call, I think 32% of parts produced on their printers um, go in production applications, probably a lot of jigs and fixtures and some end parts. Where if you look at companies like Mark Ford, it's more like 70%. Uh, 3D Systems is probably, you know, given Alliance 25 um, or was, you know, it could be, you know, 40, 50% of sales. So I, I do think it's the, um, the exposure to manufacturing or production applications that gives Stratasys a better valuation or gives 3D Systems a higher valuation than that Stratasys. I mean, I guess just to come in and, and maybe bat for 3D Systems here a little bit um, and, and harking back to some of that market data that we were discussing up front, you know, and you mentioned Stratasys doesn't have, I mean, they've got the SAF um, technology. It really hasn't gone anywhere. Um, they haven't done, they haven't really been able to nail metals um, in the way that 3D Systems has. And, 
you know, if we look at those growth projections for metals versus polymers, I mean, the, broadly what it's saying is that polymers is a much more mature market. Growth isn't as strong. Um, and metals is really where you're going to see a lot of the future growth coming from. I think that the two companies are like have been through slightly different recent histories. As you mentioned, 3D Systems has really had a, a, a huge renewal with Jeffrey Graves um, coming on board as CEO, uh, whereas Stratasys has, has had, a, a, I would say, a more stable experience. Um, and I think that 3D Systems is is really at a point of of inflection at the moment um i i do agree i think that i mean the financials are stronger on on the stratus side and uh you know wall street should value accordingly but i think that there is more potential with uh the 3d systems business longer term or even medium term yeah it's interesting i challenge that alex because uh you know right now stratus is one of my favorites part of it is valuation but uh you know for them for the first time in probably a long time they're what I call their base businesses is growing. So FDM and Polyjet have been growing, um, you know, year over year. And a lot of that, I know they've had success in auto and, and some of these jigs and fixture applications right on production line floors. Also, they've got these new technologies, right? So they got the H350, which is high-speed centering. They got Origin, which is DLP. Uh, and they got the RPS, which is an SLA platform. So Stratasys has far and away the best channel in the industry. Right, and you give them more cool products like K-Speed Centering and DLP and SLA, and I think their channel is very equipped to, uh, you know, to you know, sell them to the customers. The customers that buy additive, they buy all technologies for the most part. I mean, the line maybe focus on one for the production and manufacturing stuff, but most of these guys buy everything. So, uh, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I think from a standpoint of you know, hat tip to Stratasys for you know their growth. It looks like some of the estimates when I look going down, you know, the next few years are slightly higher than the growth that you see at 3D Systems. You know, they they also get a little bit of an edge on the margin sort of profile. They're both very close. I do think Jeff's done an incredible job of kind of consolidating 3D Systems, by the way, and, you know, getting rid of quick parts and some of the other prototyping and refocusing. You can look, both of them are very important players in the both investment side and, and really the acquisition side of the market. They probably are the two most important players of all within additive manufacturing. So what happens with both of them is very important here. Yep, I agree. So, and I think honestly, I think um, both companies are going to probably pause their acquisition strategies right now. Stratasys maybe not because they are profitable. And if you can find accretive deals, I think they're going to do them. But uh, I think you're going to see Jeff, you know, really try to focus on profitability now. Stratasys is promising you know, 10% or double-digit operating margins within a couple of years, and Covesto is going to help them kind of expand that. Well, as an M and A person, that's the worst thing I've heard all day. So. <laughs> Hey, what, what about shifting gears for a second? Because I think there's a couple other equipment companies we should probably get, spend a little bit of time on. And I think one of the other, not, not to juxtapose them and we can handle them individually, but I always sort of like the desktop metal conversation and the Mark Ford conversation, you know, in a, in a similar way. I think they're both doing different things. And so, you know, maybe if you want, give us a, a little bit of background on how you see both of those two playing out. Yeah. All right. So uh, Rick Fulop may, like, may not like hearing this, but I'll just say this. So, you know, DM was the first company to come out that uh, Desktop Metal was the first company to come out that did a SPAC, right? And the, the benefit of the SPAC is you can do a, um, like a five-year forecast, right? Versus an IPO, you typically go just two years out. So if you look at all these SPACs, they had these crazy hockey sticks, Right, literally going from like you know forty million in sales this year to nine hundred million in sales in five years, and it was just I don't know to me there was just a lot of fluff and a lot of lying and a lot of just you know misforecasting and, and all this fact stuff. So um, Rick did a great job, and Rick, Rick's done phenomenal for the industry as far as promoting it. He's you know very passionate about the industry. Um, he got out when he did his spec. They didn't have high redemption, so he got most of that spec money. And then he quickly did some acquisitions. I do think he did some good acquisitions. I think acquiring X1 kind of helped consolidate and kind of capture share in that uh, powder bed metals. Obviously, El Sablani's company, you know, that's a you know, awesome, you know, DLP LCLA type company. So I'm a big fan of what Rick's doing. He had doing all these acquisitions, had all these scattered you know, facilities. They had a big, big burn rate. So Right now, Rick announced, our desktop metal announced about uh, maybe six, nine months ago that you're going to do a $50 million OPEX reduction, cost cuts, facilities consolidation. When they reported their last quarter here, uh, maybe just a month ago, they announced another $50 million of cost cuts. So you're talking $100 million of cost coming out of that 
out of their uh, their income statement here. So, but they do got good technologies. I think powder bed metal could be huge. The P50 is the most important product uh, in my mind for that company because that really moves them in production. It's incredibly fast. Uh, the problem is it's a complex platform, right? So you need to have powder handling capabilities. You need to have facilities capable of doing this. You need to have post-processing. You know, they've talked a lot about what Black & Decker was doing. You know, they had like a rail system built to kind of move the parts around to these different processes. So it's just a very, very slow process. And as we know, I mean, manufacturing applications have been so slow to take off. Having followed this space for 18 years, we've always talked about, you know, usually direct digital manufacturing or you know, end part production, but um, I do think he's got good exposure there. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I'll, I'll make one comment on on desktop because I mean, I think you know, Rick set the tone with Spacs, and he in coming out of the gate and doing the acquisitions, uh, he's also been you know fairly good to work with. I think from a lot of the M and A perspectives, I don't think you hear a lot of uh, negative things about Rick from from that standpoint. They have hit some good growth. Just looking at their historical numbers, and mainly through acquisition, though, right? It's it's you know sixteen million to one hundred twelve million. Last year was two hundred nine million, but it looks like that's starting to temper. And you know, getting the cost in line will be important for them for sure. Um, but I think it's it's sort of part of their story. So you know, unfortunately, from the M and A side, I, I you know I would love for him to have a revisit to 2021, but I don't see that coming in the cards until they get cost aligned. Yeah, it's not happening, Danny. Sorry. Uh, they've you know gone on a shopping spree, right? And um, now they're going to have a whole heap of costs associated with all of these different diversified businesses scattered around the globe. I mean, I think what's interesting around desktop metal is that the, the core tech is binder jetting and, you know, particularly with the acquisition of X1, uh, really beefing up their binder jetting presence and capturing a fair portion of the market as well. Um, you mentioned P50, um, Troy. I mean, the thing is, this, this technology is hard. Uh, laser powder bed fusion is really dominating um, in AM and, you know, metal AM, and it becomes uh, a, a lot uh, harder to make a case for adoption of, of, you know, the desktop metal technology. So um, they've got a little bit of an uphill battle as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you draw a comparison to Mark Forged, I think, which would be interesting to pivot to next. Um, I'm wondering, I guess, just as an opening question, Troy, are they a value stock right now? Short answer is yes. I want to quick say, Rick, full up, I love you. Don't take anything negative. <laughs> it's great for the industry. Uh, yeah, Mark Forged, another company that I, that I really, really uh, respect. I think... Um, there's only a couple that have a, a differentiation. A lot of companies have similar technologies. Maybe one's open, one's closed. You know, faster, cheaper. You name it. But what Mark Forge can do with their uh, you know, the carbon continuous carbon inlays and make these incredibly strong parts. You talk to anybody who runs a Mark Forge printer, and they love them. These things work. They don't break. You typically don't get a uh, extended maintenance contract, or you don't renew them because they just don't break, right? So, um, is it a value sack? Absolutely. If you want to go back to my valuation grid here, so Mark Forge has a hundred and excuse me, their market cap is one hundred and seventy-one million, and they have one hundred and sixty-eight million in cash, right? So that implies that the enterprise value is three million dollars, which baffles me. This company is doing a hundred million in sales last year. They're going to do, I think, their guidance was one hundred one to one ten this year. Um, the concern is that they also have a burn, right? And I think Wall Street thinks they're going to have to raise capital again. So no one wants to buy the stock in front of a potential, you know, capital raise. So you get diluted down from that. I was just on the road with uh, with the CFO of Mark Forge a couple of weeks ago, visiting institutional clients. Um, and I knew uh, Mark Schwartz from his days at Fabernet. He's a phenomenal CFO. Um, he's adamant that they're going to exit the end of next year with $100 million of cash still on the balance sheet. And the reason they have a high burn rate, it, it's planned. They had uh, a lot of SPAC proceeds. This is why they did a SPAC. They wanted to accelerate product development, accelerate sales and marketing, um, and really try to fuel the top line. So if they needed to, they could scale all that back and kind of get to, you know, break even a profitability right now. So, but to me, this is a, it, it's shocking to me that Mark Forge is trading below a dollar and then trading that, you call it a zero enterprise value versus some of these private companies that don't have revenues yet, they're trading at hundreds of millions of dollars. It's, it's baffling. The share price has definitely taken a big tumble in the last year. I mean, it's it's reduced by three quarters um, in 12 months, essentially. Question for you both, though. Mark Forge did file an 8K in January regarding the executive severance packages. 
which sort of, you know, raises a bit of a question mark around the future of Mark Forge um, and why such a, you know, an AK would be filed like this. Um, does this, what does this mean? Are they uh, preparing for a buyout potentially? I would be surprised. Um, I, they don't want to sell down here, right? And if they, you know, honestly believe that they can kind of turn to profitability by the end of next year, there would be no reason to sell. So um, I'm unfamiliar with that uh, filing, Alex, so I, I can't tell you. I don't know don't know how to answer that. Yeah, I, I don't think they are either, but I, I, you know, it's a good question. You know, and if you look at sort of where they are, one of the things that you can say about uh, really where, you know, if you, if you look at the performance of the business and they do have a high burn rate, but they have the, some of the highest gross margins for equipment makers in the category. So, which is a rarity. Think, <laughs> right. I mean, I think they're, they're historically well over 50%. They, at one point I think they were like 58, they're down to like something around 50, 51 right now. So they're, they're trending in the right direction from that standpoint. Um, so, uh, you know, I think, there's definitely, I'd say from the M&A side, uh, they've been a little lackluster. They haven't done a lot there. They're conserving their cash probably in a way that they should, sort of what Troy just said. What I point out, just to correct you a little bit. So they did have, I think in 2021, they had 58% gross margins. Um, the just reported quarter, they had 47.5% gross margins. Um, so you talk about, I think on a year-over-year basis, they said they're down about 800 bips. They said about half that is because of just component pricing, supply chain issues. They're Everybody's kind of buying extra components at higher prices just to kind of have it in case they need it um, versus not being able to, to sell um, and get the revenues. So that's half of it. And they think that's going to burn off because now some of these supply issues have become less of an issue. And then the other half of that reduction in the gross margins has to do with the launch of the FX20. So if you look at what uh, Mark Forge historically sold, you know, the Mark II, $18,000 printer, I think the X7 is like a you know fifty sixty thousand dollar printer. Um, you know the FX20 is going to be you know two hundred and forty thousand dollar type of printer or something on that lines. So very very big ASPs. It's going to be alt temp with you know continuous fiber uh, continuous carbon fiber inlay, which would be the only one that can do it. It's going to be huge for aerospace. Um, so I do think you know Mark Forge has got a couple really cool product cycles. The other one, the acquisition that they did was uh, Digital Metal. Right, yeah. which gets them into this uh, this powder bed metal uh, market and competes with uh, desktop. I think they got, uh, uh, you know, saying that they can just kind of go into that aerospace composite grade, continuous carbon fiber. I like that space a lot for sure, but I do think that, um, that that's a slow adoption curve as well. And I think everybody should have some limited expectations. You've got companies that have been doing the automated tape layup type work for a long time, and they're going to fight pretty hard to... Uh, to keep those markets and, you know, think about the Coriolis's of the world, the electro impacts of the world. But I think the, obviously they're making some headways for 3D printing. I would tend to agree, Daddy. I don't know that they're necessarily going to get too much into the aerospace market, but I do think that Mark Forge actually does a really great job of being the sort of almost like non-pretentious OEM, you know, like their their happy place is like selling into machine shops and, you know, selling into into places where it's uh, it, it's much more a plug and play set of technology. So these are users that are not necessarily experienced users, but are making pretty good use of 3D printing straight away via MarkForge technology. So that's not such a bad thing, really. We need more of these types of uh, 3D printing uh, companies around. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where actually, if you kind of go back to Stratasys, if you look at some of the investments they did, I think one of the companies that's a, a real watch in this category is 9T uh, out of Switzerland and what they're doing with their 3D printing capacity with continuous carbon fiber. And so just, you know, heads up but uh, on that one. But I think at some point, um, you know, I'd love to hit one more big equipment companies. We talk about the future of metals. Um, I think if we didn't hit Velo, we'd probably have a giant mistake here on our hands because... Uh, the fastest you know, growing metal 3D printing company. It, <laughs> is, it right? is. <laughs> it is. And so, I mean, I, I think that's, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting story for sure. And, you know, Troy, why don't, uh, why don't you give us your take to kick this off? Uh, I'm a huge fan of Velo. When I think about you know, kind of the two differentiated kind of technologies in the market, uh, it's, it's Mark Forge and, and, and Velo, um, you know, what they've been able to do with supportless metal. Right. So they can do zero overhang. So you can build a whole part and not have any support structures in metal. Um, for those that don't know, they listen to the podcast. Taking metal supports off a part is expensive. It's time consuming. 
this stuff is heavy. I mean, it's not easy. So, and now you can actually do more complex geometries, right? Because previously you may not be able to get into the part to eliminate the, the support structures. Alex, do you have thoughts? I think there's a lot of OEMs, metal OEMs out there that would say, we can do support-free metal. Uh, we've been doing it for years. I think the the biggest thing though for Velo, I mean, is their recoder technology, which is so such a sort of paradigm shift for most recoder technologies that every other metal OEM in the laser powder bed fusion category uses. Um, and that's what really sets them apart. And that that is actually sort of like the key to why they can do these, you know, support-free parts. But it is also the key to why their printers work so well. Um, and also, you know, the Sapphire XC, the big, you know, the big printer that is, you know, genius move on their behalf to um, release such a large format printer. I mean, them and SLM solutions are really going to, kind of going head to head in that respect. Um, you know, we talked about 3D systems. I, I wish 3D systems produced a, a large format printer. I'd like to know where theirs is, quite frankly. But um, but yeah, that's that, that Sapphire XC is really what drove a lot of revenue in 2022. Yeah, absolutely. And it really came from SpaceX. I think SpaceX was something like a 90% customer uh, when they did their SPAC. I think it may be down to 40, don't quote that number, but uh, it's just been diluted down. So, and they, uh, they had a lot of these pre-orders for the Sapphire uh, XC solometic discount, right? Because <laughs> the margins on those products were you know, below 10%, but I think that was part of the negotiations with uh with SpaceX. One thing to Alex that I uh, challenge you on is I do, you know, SLM, they do have their supportless capabilities, but they'll say at least what I've read recently um, is they can only do like a five uh, degree overhang for a short run and 10 degree overhangs for a little bit longer runs. So yes, they're getting closer. Yes, you can eliminate a lot of support structures, but there's some things you can't make then if there's support structures that you can't get into to eliminate or, or you know, remove. The thing that gets me about Velo, and I guess maybe what I'd like to see is that we have, and we discussed this in um, in, in our in our last episode, Danny, um, which is you have SLM and their partnership with Divergent, which is a really nice partnership that they have around the full factory experience of 3D printing, which increasingly we are all now realizing this is actually what customers are wanting. Um, and we have that, and then we also have a new and new and upcoming company in the in the shape of Freeform. Uh, speaking of you know California Space Coast, uh, who are are offering a similar uh, concept, and we don't really have that with Velo, um, a, a a much more sort of integrated partnership with an automation and post processing provider. So I, I'll jump in because I, I think you know I think for this one. To be successful here, you have to have the customers pulling these in. When you look at this, because so I think we need to jump into the services companies for a few minutes and, and talk about how their performance is working. I am seeing some pull from customers in what I in the aerospace side of the world, especially with space companies looking at and demanding, you know, companies pick up Velo machines. The hard part right now is it's a it's a very high ticket item. Um, if if you're sort of dealing with one customer, is your you know if you're looking at as if you're a services company and you have one customer that wants it, the hard part is, do I make an investment of Velo or do I pass on that? And I go to something where I might have more opportunities, like if I buy an EOS or an SLM machine, where if that uh, customer gets delays in their program, I don't have a $2 million hole sitting on my factory floor. So I think there's some things in the market that are going to clearly be yet to figure it out because, because of how customers are integrating these. And maybe that kind of is a good transition into the services side of the world because what's happening there, um, the public companies are a little bit different than the private companies to me in this space. You know, when you look at all the aerospace sort of companies, they're almost all private. When you look at the, like the metal, you know, side of the world, the more 3Ds, the Centavias, the Encodemas, the I3Ds, right? Adman, uh, by the way, who just announced two Velo machines, right? Those are all private companies and they're really dedicated on these highly engineered parts and working with customers to qualify and go into real production programs. When I look at the public companies in this space, the Shapeways, Proto Labs, I see it more as a prototyping sort of market. And and I feel like if there's a place that's starting to drag this industry down, it's it's really these companies that are relatively flat overall. 
And, you know, I think that's where sort of the, I think there, there's a misperception going on that this market's growing from a services standpoint, because it's really kind of prototyping as itself is kind of plateaued and it's really moving into production. And these companies aren't really geared to pick up those kinds of production. That's my perception. Um, but I, you know, not, not tracking as much. I think, yeah, I'd like to get both of your feedback on what you're seeing. So I agree with you on service bureaus uh, being slower growth. You know, I'd argue typically you're going to use a service bureau when you start a product and all of a sudden if you're spending millions of dollars with a service bureau, hey, I may want to buy my own printer and bring it in-house and, and save that cost. So I think I, I'd say they have a sawtooth effect. The customer grows and then it kind of drops off and they grow back again because they need extra capacity or, you know, whatever. So um, we've done our survey work for years talking to the service bureaus. And it seems like 8 to 10% is kind of the growth rate that these guys expect for the most part. Last year, two years ago, is probably, you know, double that. Right. With all this, uh, you know, nearshoring, reshoring, busted supply chains, um, you know, kind of COVID fill ins. Uh, they uh, they definitely see, saw some better growth. But, yeah, as far as the public markets go, it, it's interesting. So, you know, I follow Proto Labs. I follow Exometry. I follow Shapeways. I follow Fathom and I follow Materialize. So, you know, Materialize is a little bit of a blend. They do half service bureau and then they also do their software. The software is great. They've got medical business, too. They make parts. Um, you know, for, uh, for healthcare applications. But, you know, Protolabs is the only company that's profitable in the space. And I'd point out, they don't just do additive. They also do a lot of CNC. They do a lot of injection molding and sheet metal. I think additive is only about uh, 15% of the revenues. And they got into the space from the fine line acquisition out of Raleigh. Um, but good business. I'm a big fan of Protolabs. Um, you know, Shapeways and Fathoms is kind of timely. Both of those guys reported late last week. Um, you know, Shapeways has been kind of stuck at about $33 million in revenues for, I want to say, six of the past seven years or something. So they just have not been able to grow. Um, you know, their hope was that they take these SPAC proceeds and invest in growth. And, you know, Greg did some acquisitions too, get some little software uh, capabilities. But now they're, they're really, their whole future is, is more in, in auto and software. So they want to make kind of the store, the front end, the quoting, uh, the pricing engines and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I think I think Shapeways as a standalone added 3D printing company, you know, couldn't really be successful and, and, and massively prof- profitable. Fathom, on the other hand, they are more of a traditional service bureau, right? They have CNC, injection molding, sheet metal and additive and, and all sorts of other things. They had interesting uh, story. They did something like 13 acquisitions in a year the private equity uh, owner um, and really kind of, you know, bundled together, uh, you know, this, a larger service bureau. Um, But I think they kind of went public before it was all fully integrated. When you buy these small service bureaus, they're comfortable doing two, three million in sales every year, right? It's just kind of their, their, their business at home, right? And all of a sudden, you know, new ownership comes in, they want you to double that, right? And I think so they lost a lot of sales guys, probably lost a lot of proprietors. You know, Fathom just reported uh, and guided for the first quarter, they guided down 20% roughly on a year-over-year basis, and no one else is, is guiding like that. So some struggles there. I think part of it, too, is they're consolidating facilities and moving things around. And then quickly, I'll pause after this one, but Exometry is unique, right? So Exometry came to market uh, through a traditional IPO, not a SPAC. Um, you know, they're just really kind of a marketplace. So what they do is you upload a quote, uh, they'll farm it out to their marketplace of service bureaus and someone will make it for them. And then they typically mark it up about 30%. That's what the gross margins are. Um, and then sell it to the customer. So, uh, you know, Exometry was another one that, you know, was, was negative on when I launched on, uh, with a sell rating. Um, and my thought is, my belief, and I kind of saw that with Protolabs too. It's like you can start out and you can grow a lot. You can kind of saturate the market that you're in. And I think Exometry did that, but then it gets harder. Right. Exometry, I think if I'm a customer and, you know, if you're spending $10,000 to make a part or a prototype or whatever it is, a 30% markup on that's no big deal. It would have been 7000 but to try to find this machine shop and qualify it, it was worth 3000 to just let Exometry do it for you. If you're going to move into manufacturing, you're going to spend a million dollars now. There's no way you're going to spend. I mean, you can go find that service bureau that's going to make it for 700000 versus paying this 30% uh premium to Exometry. So I feel like Exometry did a good job of growing quickly, taking a lot of share. They were taking it from Protolabs, who did the Hubs acquisition to have something similar, but it's a smaller piece of their revenues. Um, 
but I just feel like their market's getting saturated now. I don't think they're going to be able to move into production applications. I just think they're going to have some struggles. They guided really aggressive too. I think for Xometry to hit their guidance for the year, they got to grow something like 10 to 12% sequentially, Q2, Q3, and Q4. Hmm. Good luck. I, I mean, I got to say with these business models, I, I don't think that they're wonderful business models for the public markets. Um, I don't think they're ideally suited as, as publicly listed companies, um, only because the, uh, the business is not a reliable business. As you mentioned, Troy, you know, you have a customer come online and then they'll fall off because they've matured, I guess, in their additive journey. The one thing I will say about these types of companies is that they are fantastic um, for bringing new people into 3D printing, so new customers into the 3D printing sphere. Um, And you can, you know, through most of them, um, get not just additive, but other types of manufacturing technologies as well. And so, you you know, additive is then an, an option on the table. So it is great for bringing new customers online. Those are customers, by the way, that are going to go on and buy their own machines. So the OEMs should be probably thanking them. Um, but, but in general, the, uh, the business model is, is precarious, I think, just because of that prototyping type nature. Um, and it's one thing that Makerverse, you know, with Marcus Seibold, if you listen to him talk about the vision for Makerverse, it's that it's very much around industrial production and so that they want to be the, the manufacturing partner for, for um, additive industrial production. Yeah. One thing I'd point out, Alex, is, uh, you know, you said these companies aren't like public company quality, so to speak. But, you know, Protolabs actually had for a long time, they had 30% operating margins with 30% growth. They're still extremely profitable right now. They have uh, it's probably mid-teens type operating margins, but they actually have earnings. So in the beginning of the podcast, we talked about, you know, we can't value any stock in this space on, on PE or EBITDA with the exception of Protolabs. They're nicely profitable. They do have a good business. Growth is slowing for them. That's their biggest problem right now. Uh, they think they can solve it with hubs. But uh, yeah, the other guys definitely, you know, Shapeways, you know, should they be public? Another company, Shapeways has a negative enterprise value, right? So their market cap is $15 million. They got $41 million in cash, right? So, you know, Wall Street thinks they're just going to spend the cash and not really be worth much. Um, Exometry is also not making money. Um, I think their numbers need to come down. You know, Fathom's clearly not making money now. They had a big gross margin problem in the last quarter, but uh, there's a couple. I think if you can differentiate a little bit, Protolabs really focuses on expediting orders, right? Kind of capitalizing on, you know, engineers that may be behind plan and charging expedited services. Yeah, I just make my only last comment on that one is that I think at this point, uh, you know, we do see the like the aerospace oriented uh, metal service bureaus are are doing quite well. I think they are growing, and what I see is a growing interest from the private equity world that's consolidating their CNC machine kind of uh, companies that are servicing this market and wanting to increase the the capabilities and by bringing additive in. So I see some targets starting to pick up. I'm not sure Proto Labs is a great example for them in the market, but it's a similar strategy because I think it's really more about really refined engineered parts and programs versus prototyping. So it's still a little bit different business model, but you're right. It's glad I'm glad to see that they're profitable, um, but I see a lot of interest kind of brewing in this space from, from the private equity world. All right. Well, I think we're just about done with our discussion of the public markets. This has been episode three of the Printing Money podcast. If you want to read more on the latest in the public markets, head over to 3dprint.com and look for the tag 2022 earnings. My name is Alex Kingsbury and together with my my co-host, Danny Piper, I would love to say a very big thank you to Troy Jensen, our public markets man, for being a very special guest today. If you liked this episode, feel free to head on over to your podcast platform of choice and give us a review. We would love to hear what you think. Thank you. You've been listening to Printing Money, the insider's perspective on finance and investment in the 3D printing industry. For more information about what you just listened to or for past episodes, visit www.3dprint.com.